0: And welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Michael P. Fix, Associate Professor of Political Science at Georgia State University. We will discuss his article, The Complexities of State Court Compliance with U.S. Supreme Court Precedent, which he co-authored with Justin Kingsland and Matthew Montgomery, and which was published in the Justice System Journal. So w- welcome to the podcast, Mike.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: So I, I really I, – I thought this paper was really interesting and it's sort of like a hybrid almost of like legal scholarship and political science scholarship in a way that I thought was really fascinating and kind of brought an angle to thinking about the relationship between state and federal courts that, that I hadn't really seen much of in in legal – in legal scholarship, so so just to start with, that, thanks. It was a really cool paper. Um, yeah, so I was wondering if if we could start the podcast by you kind of just in general terms describing the primary research question that you were posing in this piece.
1: Well, well, definitely, and and I appreciate that introduction because that really is a lot of what I try to do in my broader research agendas is tie sort of traditional doctrinal ways of understanding the law to more empirical political science ways of understanding the law. And I think by not setting the two aside and actually seeing how they fit together, we can learn more as a community. So, so thank you for acknowledging that. Um, as far as, as the specific question here, it's, it's actually part of a, a broader research agenda where my interest largely in state courts Has led me to think about, well, we're so focused in the law with thinking about what the US Supreme Court does and the decisions issued by the US Supreme Court. But we know simultaneously that when the US Supreme Court issues a decision, even a landmark one, it is not self enforcing for the most part. And it's up to other actors to determine really the impact of that precedent. And in many areas of the law, it's less lower federal courts and more the courts in the, the states that will have the, the last say in determining the true impact of a Supreme Court decision. So that's what brought me here. The question of, of how do state high courts decide whether to positively or negatively use the precedents issued by the U.S. Supreme Court And in future research um, that I'm working on now in a book project to expand this and actually ask, well, when do they just ignore them altogether?
0: Yeah. So I really, I, I, I dig the project and what I, one of the things I especially like about it is that on its face, it almost sounds kind of weird, right? I mean, because normally we think that you know, U.S. Supreme Court precedents. I mean, th- those are those are binding, right? I mean, state courts don't have the choice whether or not to 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 follow them. But that's not really a hundred percent true. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of how and why uh, state supreme courts might not actually be enforcing U.S. Supreme Court precedents in in the way that you describe in the paper.
1: Well, sure. Um. Even the Supreme Court itself has never said that state high courts are bound by all of its precedents in all possible cases where they could need to use those precedents or where those precedents could be relevant. The Supreme Court has said that its precedents are only binding on state high courts for matters of federal question. The adequate independent state grounds doctrine dating all the way back to Kilgore versus Missouri in the 1860s or 1870s um, basically says, hey, if state high courts can address this question purely on state grounds with no reliance on federal law, and they can do so in a way that's that's adequate to fully answer the question, then, then we have no grounds to... To, to look at their decision. Um, and even when precedent is binding, even when state high courts recognize that a precedent is binding, Supreme Court precedents often have a lot of room for interpretation. No two cases are going to ever have identical facts, so can you distinguish the precedent on the facts? And even when you don't distinguish the precedent, there's a lot of flexibility. For example, in this paper, we look at applications of Miller versus California. Miller is such a vague uh, standard laid down by the Supreme Court that we see a lot of state high courts applying Miller to come up with very liberal or very conservative outcomes, but still applying the three prong test from Miller versus California. So even when they apply a precedent, they have a lot of flexibility in how they apply that precedent.
0: So so how do you go about studying this question empirically? I mean, you're crunching a fair amount of data here and you're you're using a lot of of different variables. C- can you talk a little bit about sort of how you conceptualize approaching like posing this question and and why you chose to look at certain variables and maybe not other ones?
1: Well, that's a good question because for me, it always starts with the research question. What is it that I want to ask? What is it that I want to understand? What is it that I think existing explanations are insufficient to tell us? And then from there, I try to figure out how to get from there to something that I can empirically model. And what that means is in this case, reading hundreds of state high court obscenity decisions. And, and so I and the two grad students who worked with me on this project read every state high court obscenity decision issued since the Supreme court handed down Miller versus California. And in doing so, we were trying to isolate the, the core factor. And a big part of the, the theoretical argument that we make in this paper, and so this was our main variable that we had to figure out how to get a handle on, was that whether or not a state Supreme Court followed—again, we use Shepard citations for that—whether um, a, a state Supreme Court followed a U.S. Supreme Court president— we thought theoretically may be driven more by how that court has dealt with the precedent in the past than the precedents overall, um, positive or negative uh, treatments over time. And so, to do that, we started with each of those state high court decisions, and we looked at whether the state high court positively treated Miller, negatively treated Miller, or simply cited it, or Uh, anything else that Shepherds would code as a neutral treatment. Um, And then we essentially just kept a score for each state in each year that was a running tally of how many positive treatments minus how many negative treatments that precedent had had over time. Mm. And so that was our our main uh, variable of theoretical interest was how did Past treatments by a specific state high court impact whether or not uh, that state high court would treat the precedent positively in the future
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I noticed that you used a a term i, I think basically a, another variable that i hadn 't seen before but looked like it had some some political science literature surrounding it uh, which was uh, which was precedent vitality. And I thought that was really interesting. I was wondering if you could just spend a minute talking about what precedent vitality is, sort of how it's measured, and how it figured into the research question you were posing in your paper.
1: Well, sure. And and so that was actually the measure I was just talking about, without trying to use the the terminology. Mm. But but I'll give you a little bit of background um, on that. There there is a measure of precedent vitality in the political science uh, literature. Uh, dating back to the early 2000s, um, but traditionally this measure looked simply at um, how vital or how strong a precedent was as a function of that precedent's future treatment by the U.S. Supreme Court only, right? So so that was the traditional measure of precedent vitality, and then here we were arguing that, hey, it may be more a state-specific version of this that's relevant. And so the original measure was just again a running tally of all the positive treatments that a precedent had had, minus all of the negative treatments it had had by the U.S. Supreme Court. Our change to that measure was to do a state, excuse me, a state-specific version of that, as I mentioned a little while ago, where we did that same running tally, but with each individual state high court.
0: Okay. So when it comes to Miller v. California, the Supreme Court case you used to kind of test out your hypothesis, um, how did Miller score in sort of the previous Supreme Court-focused ranking of or measurement of precedent vitality? And and did the vitality of that precedent have an effect on your decision to, to select it?
1: That was actually one of the reasons why I decided to use Miller versus California um, here. And that was because its precedent vitality score, again, the U.S. Supreme Court one, just looking at future or looking at future U.S. Supreme Court treatments of that decision, was uh, positive and increasing over time. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court has uniformly treated Miller positively uh, over time. It has Never negatively treated it since uh, it was first established. So I thought this made an interesting precedent to look at initially because it, any variation that existed was going to exist at the state level, right? Mm. Because if precedent vitality alone should explain how states react to this, well, then those effects should be uniform across all 52 state high courts. But if how the individual state has treated it matters, then we should see variation in effects across the 52 state high courts.
0: Mm, yeah. So I, mean, I, I, I have to say, I found the, the sort of the concept of precedent vitality and sort of the way it was framed and measured really interesting b- because as soon as I read the paper, I mean, I, I understood what the goal was. And was surprised to see, so like in one of the, I think it was in a footnote, you listed a bunch of Supreme Court cases that have been ranked as like high precedent vitality. And like a lot of them are cases that most law professors see as like highly contested, right? Cases like Lemon, cases like Chevron, cases like Miller for that matter, right? With the, Which a lot of people are, I think, kind of, kind of critical of doc, doctrinally. Um, but it was fascinating to me to see that like on a different scale of measurement, a lot of those cases that might otherwise be seen as contested are actually quite, quite stable.
1: Yeah. I, I actually, to be honest, is was kind of surprised by some of those as well, and especially women. Um, and so for our book project, actually, um, I'm doing with, uh, with my colleague Ben Cassow at the University of North Dakota, um, where we're exploring this in greater theoretical depth, um, Lemon is going to be one of the cases we're going to examine there. So we're going to try to sort out what's going on there. Um, oh, very- uh, but and, and Chevron as well. Chevron's another interesting one. I, uh, I wrote my dissertation on administrative law. Um, issues. And so I'm very familiar with Chevron, and I know how controversial it is. Um, So it does surprise me that some of those have such a high score. And I think in part, um, unlike Miller, where it's just, you know, a uniformly positive score over time, some of those may be simply that there's been more positives than negatives over time. I I doubt that they're all uniformly positive like Miller.
0: Mm, mm. So was it the uniform positive treatment that made Miller attractive to you as an initial case to use to sort of test out your model?
1: It was. It was that combined with the fact that Miller is a very vague rule or a very vague standard um, in contrast to a very specific rule type precedent handed down by the Supreme Court. And and also the fact that I had worked on uh, obscenity law uh, in other projects, so it was an area of substantive interest to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uniformly positive aspect of its treatment by the U.S. Supreme Court made it attractive, in the sense that any variance that we see is going to be at the state level, right? So we would think that if how the U.S. Supreme Court had treated his own precedents was the only thing that mattered, well then. All those effects should be uniform across the states if the effect, if um, the president vitality was uniformly pres- uh, positive over time. Like
0: mm. mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of how you ran the actual study in a kind of big picture macro sense. I mean, you've talked a little bit about like the scoring and the, the data gathering process, but, but, but. I think it would be helpful to sort of get a better handle on sort of h- how you actually structured the analysis of, of the data, sort of what you were sort of hypothetically expecting to find and whether your results were consistent with your expectations.
1: So this was a a, a pretty basic statistical model, and, and I won't get into a lot of the technicalities, but essentially... Uh, This model allowed me to look at the effect of of a, a set of variables on the probability that a state Supreme Court would positively treat Miller versus California in a given case. And so I've already talked about vitality. That was the main thing we cared about. And we looked at both in the same model, both the traditional U.S. Supreme Court vitality measure and the state Supreme Court vitality measure that we had created. But we also looked at some other things. Um, you know, the the factual circumstance of the case, whether there was a, a constitutional question versus pure statutory issue, um, whether the judge writing the majority opinion mentioned that they had actually uh, viewed or read the specific material in the case, and, um, the method of selection used in the states, because, of course, some states elect their Supreme Court justices, other states they're appointed. Um, Some use a merit system. Um, We also looked at the overall ideological climate of the state and whether the state had an intermediate appellate court. And so essentially what this modeling framework does is it allows us to, to some degree, isolate the individual effects of each of these variables um, sort of assuming that each of the others were held constant. I, hopefully that's not too oversimplifying what it does. I'm bordering on being technically inaccurate to give an <laughs> intuitive explanation that works.
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, so these are a lot of fascinating variables that, that you're looking at because they get at so many different kind of elements of kind of judicial politics, as it were. Um, you know, what kind of results were you expecting and and what did you end up seeing? I mean, you obviously chose those particular variables because you saw them as things that, you know, theoretically or conceptually were likely to potentially impact um the uh, the application of – or kind of the, the use of Supreme Court precedent, w- which ones did you find were most salient for state court judges or was it – did it differ among different states?
1: Well, I, I don't have enough data to break it down to individual state-level predictions. Um, that's something that I would have to explore more qualitatively and actually get into mm. the, the doctrine and the decisions. Um, and there wasn't enough room in this paper to do that. Um, but the just empirically and looking, you can sort of think of it as an average effect across all states. Hmm. Um, that, that it was the state-specific vitality measure that seemed to have the strongest effect. That the the more positively a state high court had treated Miller in the past, the more likely it was that that same state high court would treat miller positively in the future
0: mm, mm and that's that's true even though presumably given the long time frame of the study there would be a great deal of kind of personnel variation as it were on all of those courts
1: right and that that effect is to some degree truly independent of the effect of miller's aging over time because we did account for the age of miller with a separate, uh, a variable just to look at the effect, and and many studies have shown that that a precedent is less likely to be treated positively over time, all else equal. Um, and we did find results consistent with that, but uh, including that in there is more just to show that any other effects we have are independent of that. The two mm. things other than our main, uh our main theoretical interest that really stood out was the, was the importance of the two factual variables we controlled for. Mm. Um, And, and that was, uh, that whether or not there was a constitutional question in the the case before the Supreme court, the state Supreme court, um, would lead to about a 25% increase in the likelihood that they would treat Miller positively versus a case that dealt only with statutory issues. um, and secondly, that if the majority opinion author specifically noted that they had viewed the material in question, either watched a film or read the novel or, or whatever the particular uh, potentially obscene material was, that it was about a 20% higher likelihood that they would treat Miller positively. Uh, huh. So I found those two things fascinating. Um, I don't know that I have a nice theoretical story for the latter, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an interesting finding. Um,
0: yeah, intriguing and like seems like another potentially productive avenue for, for further research.
1: Yeah, it's something that I would definitely like to get out further. Um, and I have uh, done some more historical work on, on obscenity law as well. So it, it's an area that I've spent a lot of time working on.
0: Um, mm. Mm. You know, I, I have to say, anecdotally, um, you know, I read your paper a couple of days ago, and it was very much kind of on my mind as I was thinking about this interview. And then last night, I read the transcript from yanku v. Brunetti, and like the the precedent vitality of of Miller v. California really stuck out to me because the court spent so much time in the kind of colloquy, especially with the respondents' counsel, you know, kind of talking about. Obscenity in United States v. or sorry, Miller v. California, and how that might be relevant in, in that context. So it was a nice, like, sort of synchronicity moment for me.
1: It, it has been one of those precedents that's just sort of hung around, right? It, it's sort of always in the background. And, and even the people who seem to critique it um, end up applying it in the end. Uh, there you see a few pretty uh pretty vehement criticisms of it um the salt lakes uh, the utah supreme court in salt lake city versus pippenburg a, a late 70s case um, provided one of the most vociferous critiques of a us supreme court decision i've ever seen um, and and uh, they essentially said, and and this isn't an exact quote, I don't have it in front of me, it's a bit of a paraphrase, but they they called judges who applied Miller versus California looking for a redeeming value uh, in a piece of obscene material, uh, likened to a dog returning to its own vomit in search of some morsel in the filth that may have a redeeming value to its own taste.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) yeah so so in in the paper you you conclude by sort of um, among other things, reflecting on how your findings in relation to Miller might might relate to kind of asking similar questions about other Supreme Court precedents. I, I was gonna, could you maybe reflect on sort of what you would kind of what kind of hypotheses, if any, you think you can draw? Uh, about this kind of question asked in a broader context, and you know are are there you mentioned a few other cases you were interested in in working on C- could you talk about you know why you know which which cases you think would be most useful to to pursue or explore using this framework and what features of those cases um, you want to test
1: well so so that's what I'm working on now and and this this paper gave me the idea that that this idea of a state-specific vitality is going to be really important. And and we really believe that this should matter across the board. But the other thing that really stood out here is that case-specific fact patterns matter. And so one place where facts can make a big difference is in in crim-pro cases. Mm. And so that was to be one of the next avenues that, that we looked at. And so I, I mentioned that I'm working on a book now that, that expands this theoretically a little bit. And two of the cases that we're going to examine in that book, um, I've already mentioned Lemon, but a, a second one's going to be Atkins. Mm. Um, and so some preliminary analyses, um, the paper's not out yet, um, but preliminary findings with Atkins show that, that, Obviously, facts matter a lot in how state high courts deal with these. With Atkins, we specifically looked at whether there was a specific mention that the petitioner had an IQ below 70 and whether or not there were claims of uh, mental health issues, uh, because a lot of petitioners were trying to use uh, claims of mental health to argue that they deserved an Atkins exception and the state courts uniformly said no to that.
0: Oh, this uh, is fascinating. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh,
1: in addition to vitality and case facts, uh, another thing that, that we think is going to matter a lot and, and something that we need to, to look at more is whether the initial U.S. Supreme Court precedent um, involved a sort of vague standard that that gave state high courts a lot of flexibility in how they applied them. As would Miller versus California, or a real clear uh, rule where they had little wiggle room, such as in Atkins, where the court held, you know, absolutely no executions of the intellectually disabled, although Mm -mm. they left a lot of wiggle room in determining who was intellectually disabled.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I got to say, I mean, I... I clerked on a state supreme court, the Washington State Supreme Court, and you know, so a lot of what you're doing in this paper really resonated with my experience of how state supreme courts um, kind of thought about and applied, or didn't apply quite, (laughs) quite directly, uh, U.S. Supreme Court precedent. And if I may, it really struck me that that two two cases are kind of related cases that might be worth. Studying as well would be both uh, Crawford uh, on the, um, the testimony and uh, uh, the Blakely Booker line of cases on on sentencing, because you know state supreme courts, as you say, were applying those cases a lot and really kind of increasingly giving their own gloss to what what those cases were holding.
1: Yeah, I, I think those are good suggestions. Actually, uh Blakely and Booker were what was a line that I was thinking about uh potentially exploring for the book we're doing now. And and, and the, the problem there is automating the coding on this stuff is pretty difficult. So, you know, we have to read these state high court decisions to create these variables with the same level of scrutiny as if we were doing a doctrinal examination of, of the opinion. So it's very time-consuming. So when you have a, clay, a case where there's a few thousand state Supreme Court decisions uh, dealing with the precedent, um, it, it gets very difficult. Uh, but definitely it's something I would like to try to do in the future if I can uh, acquire some grant money to to hire an army of researchers to tackle some of those, um, larger cases. So, so, so so far, one of the big case selection, uh, factors has, has been the number of cases, um, where a state high court has dealt with the precedent because I need a sufficient number, uh, to be able to do the kind of empirical work I do, uh, and still meet the assumptions of the statistical models. um, but not so many that it's, it's untenable to uh, hand code all the variables in all the cases.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, so, so Mike, I, I was wondering if in closing, you could just talk a little bit, can we, you, you've said something already, but maybe talk a little bit more about sort of what your kind of hypothetical expectations uh, are going forward as you work on this new book project and start looking at some other cases with, with different features, sort of what are you expecting to see and what are you expecting areas of uncertainty where you're kind of expecting unpredictability or, you know, maybe looking for things that, that we wouldn't necessarily think about.
1: Okay. Well, what I the the main thing that we expect is is to continue to see this state vitality have a strong effect. That that the uh, the more a state high court positively treats a given precedent, the more likely they are to continue to do so in the future. Um, the other thing that that we are pretty sure about is that in any given issue area, there's going to be a handful of core factual considerations specific to each individual case that should matter. Um, beyond that, the interesting thing is there's some things that we thought would matter that, that didn't perform well in the Miller case, uh, such as mm. the overall state ideological climate. Um, ideology is, a, is, or obscenity is a, a big moral issue in many states. So we thought that that would have an effect. Unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, state high courts are tied to the public because many of them mm-hmm. are elected. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if ideology starts to matter in other areas. Um, a- another thing that I'm interesting, interested to see moving forward that I'm still not quite sure what to expect is that there's very little research out there, either in the political science literature or in the more traditional legal literature, Looking at why state high courts sometimes completely ignore what should be a relevant US Supreme Court precedent. So so even though we didn't do that in this paper, imagine a state high court obscenity case where they just make no mention whatsoever of Miller versus California. Under what hmm. circumstances do they decide to do that? And that's something that we're exploring in the book um, that I think is going to be interesting. But we don't really have a lot of big expectations yet for, for when we should see that versus when we shouldn't. It's something that that we're still fleshing out a little bit.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much for talking with me today. I mean, this is a really – it was a cool paper and a really cool kind of bigger picture project. And I think it's just fantastic that, you know, you're doing so much of this good work on the kind of federal state court relationship, which, you know, I don't think gets as much attention as it should from, from legal scholars, uh, you know, as well. So thanks.
1: Well, thank you for having me. We're here with Alan Arkin, who's one of the stars of the new comedy Fire Sale. Is there any sex or violence in Fire Sale? Rob and I hold each other and jump up and down at one point. Would that be sex or violence? I don't want to get into any philosophical discussions about where sex begins and where violence ends, or vice versa. Fire Sale. It's just plain nuts. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.